This is A Sharpening Mind, number nine. In the last episode, I started going over five dialogues written by Plato, the subject of which was Socrates and his final days. And in that first part, we saw how Socrates chose to conduct himself when appearing before the courts of Athens and his unwillingness to stray from his own moral compass, regardless of the consequences. And those consequences were most surely death, but he felt it necessary to value and maintain his, his own moral code above this human life that he at the time possessed. And in this next part, we will get a look at how he responds once he hears the verdict of guilty and the request for the penalty of death. And at the time, the way the court system worked was the person accusing you would come up with a penalty that they thought appropriate. They would say that to the courts and then the courts would give you a chance to give another penalty. And then based off of those two, the judges would choose the penalty. Um, so this next part that Socrates says is <clears throat> his, his rebuttal or his choice of penalty against Miletus's choice for the penalty of death. Socrates says, what counter assessment should I propose to you men of Athens? Clearly it should be a penalty I deserve. And what do I deserve to suffer or to pay because I have deliberately not led a quiet life, but have neglected what occupies most people, wealth, household affairs, the position of general or public order, or the other offices, the political clubs and factions that exist in the city. I thought myself too honest to survive if I occupied myself with those things. I did not follow that path that would have made me of no use either to you or to myself, but I went to each of you privately and conferred upon him what I say is the greatest benefit by trying to persuade him not to care about any of his belongings before caring that he himself should be as good and as wise as possible. Not to care for the city's possessions more than for the city itself and to care for other things in the same way. And what I see here from Socrates is he is displaying this sort of calm confidence that comes along with a man that is sure of himself as he follows his own moral compass and is not afraid of the result. And he basically is saying to the courts that the only thing he's guilty of is not falling victim to valuing things that are surface level things, household affairs, wealth, positions of general or public order and offices. He says, I haven't valued any of those things. The only thing I've done is I've gone to you individual by individual. And I've tried to show you that many of these things we value are not valuable in the slightest. And that what we should value is something inside. 
Socrates continues to say, What do I deserve for being such a man? If I must truly make an assessment according to my deserts and something suitable, what is suitable for a poor benefactor who needs leisure to exhort you? Nothing is more suitable, gentlemen, than for such a man to be fed in the Pritaneum. Much more suitable for him than for any of you who has won a victory of Olympia with a pair or a team of horses. And this Pritaneum was the magistrate's hall or town hall of, Ath of Athens in which public entertainments were given, particularly to Olympian victors on their return home. So another quite bold statement from Socrates, as he says, what I feel I deserve is a celebration in the hall of Olympian victors for what I have done. And I'm sure that it would come as no surprise to anyone that many of the judges would find this highly offensive. But Plato believed this to be true as he followed his moral compass. And after Socrates' request for his penalty, he is sentenced to death. And he gets to say a few words after this, and he takes the opportunity to continue to give some wisdom to the courts. And he continues to be an example, even after he learns that he will be killed. He says, I was convicted because I lacked not words, but boldness and shamelessness and a willingness to say to you what you would most gladly have heard from me. Lamentations and tears and my saying and doing many things that I say are unworthy of me, but that you are accustomed to hear from others. I did not think then that the danger I ran should make me do anything mean, nor do I now regret the nature of my defense. I would much rather die after this kind of defense than live after making the other kind. Neither I nor any other man should, on trial or in war, contrive to avoid death at any cost. Indeed, it is often obvious in battle that one could escape death by throwing away one's weapons and by turning to supplicate one's pursuers. And there are many ways to avoid death and every kind of danger, if one will venture to do or say anything to avoid it. It is not difficult to avoid death, gentlemen. It is much more difficult to avoid wickedness, for it runs faster than death. So he maintains his position, and he says that he knows why he was convicted, and he was convicted because he didn't break down in tears and beg, and that he knew, it seemed like he knew that was going to happen. And he also gave the courts a warning, which is that they ought to fear their own wickedness above death. And maybe we can all think about that, about how those tendencies in each of us to get revenge or to do something hurtful to someone 
that in a way that is a death, in a way that's killing that moral compass inside of us by giving in to that, the wickedness that he speaks of. He says the wickedness runs faster than death. And he chooses to live a life of justice and high moral code and in truth. And the way to do that, as he's alluding to, is to fight off that wickedness. Because when we give in to those urges to get someone back or to stoop down to someone's level and get some sort of revenge, what we do is we hurt ourselves. Because I know I've done that before. I did it more often when I was younger and sometimes I still do it today. And I try to catch myself and stop it before it happens. And I try to understand that that part of me is just something I have to fight off. Just like we all have things we have to fight off. And when someone wrongs you, getting them back, getting some sort of revenge, all it does is it hurts you because it sets you up to do that again and again. And it sets you up on that negative path of momentum. And he's saying we need to fight off that wickedness at all costs. And we need to concentrate on being truthful and being just and develop our own moral compass and follow that until our last day as he did. And Socrates ends his final address to the court with this statement. Now the hour to part has come. I go to die, you go to live. Which of us goes to the better lot is known to no one except the God. And in the next part of the book, Socrates is in some sort of holding cell that they had at the time, and he is awaiting his penalty that comes about 24 hours later. And a group of his friends come and they bring enough money to pay off the guards and persuade Socrates to escape. This next part is a conversation between him and a man named Credo, who comes to get him out. And Credo tries to convince Socrates that he should leave and perhaps run to live in another city and live out the rest of his days. And Socrates goes on to explain to Credo his opinion on the matter. So he says, should a man professionally engaged in physical training, pay attention to the praise and blame and opinion of any man or to those of one man only, namely a doctor or a trainer. Then he says, we should not then think so much of what the majority will say about us, but what we will say who understands justice and injustice, the one that is, and the truth itself. So that in the first place, you were wrong to believe that we should care for the opinion of many about what is just beautiful, good and their opposites. 
So he relates physical training to this knowledge of justice and injustice. And he says, you wouldn't trust uh, your physical training to just anyone. You would trust some sort of doctor or trainer or someone that, someone that understood those things. And so why should we entrust our understanding of what is just and what is moral to just anyone? He's saying that these people that convicted me, they don't understand what justice is. And so I do not care what they think. Then Socrates says, look at it this way. If, as we were planning to run away from here, or whatever one should call it, the laws in the state came and confronted us and asked, tell me, Socrates, what are you intending to do? Do you not by this action attempt to destroy us, the laws, and indeed the whole city, as far as you are concerned? Or do you think it possible for a city not to be destroyed if the verdicts of its courts have no force, but are nullified and set at naught by private individuals? So right here, Socrates is valuing the city over his ability to escape because he has a free pass to escape his sentence right now. His friends are there with money. They've, they've paid the guards or they've prepared to pay the guards. The guards have agreed to take the money and he is still arguing whether or not it is just to stay or go. And he is saying, what sort of value does a city have if its elected officials' verdicts are not enforced? And it is a very respected character trait to continue to value that, continue to value the city and it's another example of how Socrates was an example. And as the conversation between Socrates and Credo slowly comes to an end, Socrates describes something that he feels the law is saying to him. And he says, be persuaded by us who have brought you up, Socrates. Do not value either your children or your life or anything else more than goodness in order that when you arrive in Hades, you may have all this as your defense before the rulers there. If you do this deed, you will not think it better or more just or more pious here, nor will any one of your friends, nor will it be better for you when you arrive yonder. As it is, you depart, if you depart, after being wronged not by us, the laws, but by men. But if you depart after shamefully returning wrong for wrong and mistreatment for mistreatment, after breaking your agreements and commitments with us, after mistreating those you should mistreat least, yourself, your friends, your country, and us, we shall be angry with you while you are still alive, and brothers, the laws of the underworld will not receive you kindly, knowing that you tried to destroy us as far as you could. Do not let Credo persuade you, rather than us, to do what he says. And after saying this, Socrates says, well, Credo, if you have anything else to say, uh, let me hear it. And if it convinces me, so be it. And Credo knew 
that there was nothing he could say, and perhaps Credo was convinced that what Socrates had chosen to do was the right thing. So Socrates says, Let it be then, Credo, and let us act in this way, since this is the way that God is leading. And that is the end of that particular dialogue. And the next one is Mino, and we aren't given too much of a scene as to how we got to this point or where they are, but it is a conversation between Socrates and Mino about virtue and about how virtue comes to be in a person, whether we're born with it or if we develop it and where it comes from. And Socrates is explaining to Mino what he believes about the human soul and what happens before and after we die. And he says he has spoken to priests and priestesses and many others. And what they have told him is, see whether you think they speak the truth. They say that the human soul is immortal. At times it comes to an end, which they call dying. At times it is reborn, but it is never destroyed. And one must therefore live one's life as piously as possible. And he shares a quote from Snell, which is as follows. Persephone will return to the sun above in the ninth year, the souls of those from whom she will exact punishment for old miseries. And from these come noble kings, mighty in strength and great in wisdom, and for the rest of time men will call them sacred heroes. And he goes on to say, As the soul is immortal, has been born often, and has seen all things here and in the underworld, there is nothing which it has not learned. So it is in no way surprising that it can recollect the things it knew before, both about virtue and other things. As the whole of nature is akin, and the soul has learned everything, nothing prevents a man, after recalling one thing only, a process men call learning, discovering everything else for himself, if he is brave and does not tire of the search, for searching and learning are, as a whole, recollection. So he's saying that if this soul is immortal, as the priests and priestesses say, then it not only leaves this body, but it comes again and again. It has seen life and death many times, and it has seen all things, so that this virtue that they're trying to find is not so much something that we learn, but something that in time we remember. And that's something of itself that we could think about for a moment, because it does seem as though each time I've had some sort of epiphany or awareness or awakening in a moment, it has 
always made so much sense and it has always made me wonder why I didn't know it before because it always seems so obvious. The new wisdom always seems so obvious. And it surely does feel like we're remembering. Now, I suppose we can learn things. We can learn new words. We can learn new ways to do some math formula. But when it comes to objects of the spirit, when it comes to virtue and morals, it does always feel like something we're remembering. It does always feel like something so obvious we should have known before. And it leads me to wonder if this soul is immortal. And so Mino asks him, how then is it possible for us not to learn something, but to only recall it? And Socrates goes on to draw in the sand uh, a series of lines and boxes. And he inquires to someone, a young man in Mino's company, to come and be questioned. And Socrates asks the young man a series of questions about the lines and the sizes of the boxes and the length of the lines and the, and the length of the boxes. And he gets information from the young man about the diagram that the young man was never given. And so he uses this as proof that we can, if asked the right questions, find or recall some information within us that was never taught. And he goes on to describe it here. He says, And as we said a short time ago, he did not know. That is true, Mino says. So these opinions were in him, were they not? Yes. So the man who does not know has within himself true opinions about the things that he does not know. So it appears. These opinions have now just been stirred up like a dream. But if he were repeatedly asked about these same things in various ways, you know that in the end, his knowledge about these things would be as accurate as anyone's. It is likely, says Mino. And he will know it without having been, without having been taught but only questioned and find the knowledge within himself. Yes. And is not finding knowledge within oneself recollection? Certainly, he says. And Socrates says to Mino, virtue would be neither an inborn quality nor taught but come to those who possess it as a gift from the gods, which is not accompanied by understanding. It follows from this reasoning, Mino, that virtue appears to be present in those of us who may possess it as a gift from the gods. We shall have clear knowledge of this when, before we investigate how it comes to be present in men, 
we first try to find out what virtue in itself is. But now the time has come for me to go. You convince your guest friend Anitus here of these very things of which you have yourself been convinced in order that he may be more amendable. If you succeed, you will also confer a benefit upon the Athenians. And after getting through this much of the book, I've realized that there is so much more to get into, especially in this final dialogue. And so I'll end part two here and see you in part three.